Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to the Wealth Tech Today podcast, and I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, the founder of Ezra Group Consulting. And this is our February News Roundup, where we cover a curated selection of the most interesting news stories in Wealth Tech. But this month, there's one story that's so huge that I just don't have time to talk about anything else. And that story is Swiss Bank UBS buying pioneering robo-advisor Wealthfront for $1.4 billion. I'm going to dive deep on this one from reviewing some of Wealthfront's history and how we got here, providing details about the price and the valuation, as well as my opinion on whether this is a marriage made in heaven or possibly someplace farther south. But before we start, let me ask you, if you are an executive at an enterprise wealth management firm and you're having issues with one of your technology platforms, you need to call Ezra Group. Our consulting team has decades of experience with all aspects of wealth management technology, data, and operations. Whether you're looking to optimize an existing system, revamp it, integrate it, or replace it entirely, Ezra Group is the one call you should make. We help firms like yours make the right decisions regarding their technology for smooth front-to-back office operations. Go to EzraGroupLLC.com for more information. Let me take care of a few housekeeping items before we get started. A quick shout out to our sponsor for this episode, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. You can check them out at investinothers.org. Be sure to subscribe to the Wealth Tech Today podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't listen, you don't miss future episodes. All right, now let's get the news started. buys Wealthfront at a $1.4 billion deal. Of course, the story was in every media outlet that covers financial news, including the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and all of the industry trade mags, Investment News, WealthManagement.com, ThinkAdvisor, FinancialPlanning.com, and so on. But one of the most informative pieces with the best reporting came from RIA Biz, written by Lisa Schindler. So go over there and read through it when you get a chance. We'll provide a link in our show notes. So what's been of the history of Wealthfront? How did we get here? So Wealthfront was founded back in 2008 by Andy Ratcliffe, who uh, also co-founded Benchmark Capital, one of the most successful venture capital firms. And they have uh, been so successful, they've invested in companies like eBay, OpenTable, Snapchat, Twitter, and Uber. So Andy's a bit of a legend. And he actually started out this firm called Kaching. It wasn't called Wealthfront. And it was a crowdsourced investing platform that was going to shake up the mutual fund industry where users could post their portfolios and others could invest in them. An idea which didn't last very long once they tried to monetize it. In 2010, the company made one of the many pivots and they abandoned the crowdsourced idea and launched an online investment service. That's when the firm changed to uh, Wealthfront. Uh, but it wasn't a robo-advisor yet. They actually relied on a group of 44 RIAs and asset managers to run their client portfolios. It wasn't until about the end of 2012 that they brought the portfolio management in-house and began levying their 25 basis points asset management fee. And the, the wealth that we know now was born. Uh, Ratcliffe was original CEO until uh, their COO, Adam Nash, succeeded him, uh, succeeded him in 2014. And uh, Nash had, uh, was an alumni of both LinkedIn and eBay 
before joining uh, the Kaching slash Wealthfront. And uh, under Nash's leadership, they had done something interesting. They started uh, making bids to manage investments for the staff at all the tech corporations in Silicon Valley. I think uh, companies like Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Microsoft, Twitter. Um, it became a, a factor in their early success since they uh, brought in a lot of assets from a relatively small number of clients and also give them some cachet to say, hey, we've got all the Facebook money, we've got Google money. Uh, and also these are folks who had stock options that turned them into multimillionaires overnight. Wealthfront also rolled out a high net worth investment management service, tax loss harvesting, direct indexing, and one of the earliest providers to provide that. And their company motto was we, that we democratize access to, to sophisticated financial advice. And they were off and running. Um, Ratcliffe returned to the CEO role in 2016. Uh, I was reading some articles around that time when um, uh, Nash stepped down and Ratcliffe took over. And uh, Darren Courtney, who at the time was uh, a principal executive at CEB, said, uh, and this is, uh, I think, pr prophetic, uh, where robo-advisors tend to fall short is where your true advice needs to go beyond simple allocation. And that's really true. You know, the the robo-advisors had to keep adding and keep expanding once they realized <clears throat> that their the simple allocation of an ETF basket just wasn't enough to keep uh, clients. They, they needed more. And as the client, their clients started to get older, you know, with these, these young um, tech people who were their core of their, their client base, started to get older, have families, and have more complex needs, they outgrew uh, the simple robo-advising. So I've written about Wealthfront many times on my blog and, and been quoted in the press many times, often I have to admit in a negative light. Uh, for example, I wrote one rather harsh article, which I entitled Dead Robo Walking, Why Wealthfront is Doomed, back in 2016. Now their AUM back then <coughs> was about 20, uh, 2.8 billion in, uh, in AUM. Now they've 10X'd it since then, so clearly they weren't doomed, but they really, the, the goal there was, uh, what we were trying to say was they were never going to disrupt human advisors as they said they would. And as uh, uh, Andy Ratcliffe was constantly talking about how human advisors are the past and that robo-advisors are the future. In fact, Wealthfront never even came close to catching the leaders, to becoming the leader in, in, in assets in, in robo-advice, digital advice, or online advice. Uh, you know, uh, Vanguard and Schwab you know, uh, you know, hoovered up 80% of the assets that were in that space. And Wealthfront and Betterment and all the rest were, 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 uh, were always, uh, always chasing them. Now, um, I also wrote an article called Why Acorns is the Only Robo-Advisor That Could Be Worth a Billion Dollars. That was also 2016. So uh, inflation uh, a bit since then, but everyone really wants that billion-dollar valuation. It's so common. Uh, that everyone just wants to be able to say that, hey, we got a billion. And that is sort of a mark, a badge of honor. Hey, we're successful. We, we, we made a billion dollar valued company. And of course, a billion isn't what it used to be uh, with inflation, but there's still uh, firms looking to get a billion. Now, Wealthfront's been on the market since at least November of last year when we saw some articles about them um, uh, putting themselves on the block and trying to find some buyers, but really couldn't find anybody. There was rumors that they were putting out their, they were shopping out to other wirehouses and major banks without any success. And even their uh, custodian RBC uh, was rumored to be looking at buying them, but turned them down. Uh, so I guess it took about six months for them to finally find somebody 
who was willing to pay at least what they could claim was a billion dollar price tag. But was it really a billion dollars? So that's an, another interesting aspect. There's some reporting, as I mentioned, from RIA Biz about the details behind the pricing. Turns out it's not a $1.4 billion deal. It's really a $700 million deal with a series of balloon payments if certain performance marks are hit. There's no guarantees. And this gives everybody an out. So the, the, the sellers, so Andy and his team can say, look, we did it. We sold for 1.4 billion. We're heroes, you know, congratulate us. But then the UBS can say, if things don't work out, well, look, we didn't really pay 1.4 billion. We never had to give them that other 700 million in balloon payments because they didn't meet all the performance marks that we told them to do, that they agreed to do. So we got a great deal on this, on this asset. So let's have one out um, of the deal. Now, this is not the first time this kind of deal has been done. If you look at last year and a very similar uh, acquisition, Empower Retirement uh, Company uh, made a billion dollar acquisition of another robo-advisor, Personal Capital, which also wasn't a billion dollar deal. It was an $825 million deal with $175 million in incentives. Now that's an interesting comparison because it's also a robo-advisor. Um, and close to the same amount of money, 825 versus 700. But if you look under the covers, it's a, it's a very different, um, very different group of, of, of assets. And it almost makes you wonder if UBS overpaid for Wealthfront. Um, so Empower paid 825 for personal capital. They only had 19 billion in assets versus uh, Wealthfront's 28 billion in assets. But that's you know, a set value for those assets. What personal capital has that Wealthfront does not is two and a half million registered users on their platform of their aggregation and personal finance tools. That's a, that's a, a pretty big group of users that can be monetized for other things, sold other uh, services, tracked, that data can be sold. So there's value to that asset that Wealthfront doesn't have. So now they do have... Uh, 440,000 clients for their 28 billion, but that's still way less, whatever that's uh, six, you know, one sixth of the number of users of personal capital. Um, now Wealthfront has received $204 million in financing since then, and personal capital received 265, which was surprising. I really thought the numbers would be reversed, but when I looked into it over Crunchbase, you can check these out. Personal capital, 265 million in funding, Wealthfront, 205 million. Still, uh, not the great return that the, the VCs normally want. They're looking for seven to 10X. So 3Xing their money is a, basically a loss when it comes down to, we look at how long the money has been sitting in there. Um, they, I, I would think the VCs are really not happy about getting that type of return. Uh, uh, Tim Welsh, uh, president of Nexus Strategy in RIA Biz, uh, said something similar. He said, they must be hiding in a corner, hoping no one notices they sold their disruptive platform to a 160-year-old bank and warehouse. The irony is very rich here. These are the very same people that came to dethrone. So true. It's so true. So, uh, And it's, it's even more ironic considering how many times Andy Ratcliffe has disparaged uh, not only financial advisors, but banks recently. And that leads me to the next point, which is that... Uh, Wealthfront became a bank. So they made another pivot in a long series of pivots, and which I don't think is bad. Firms have to pivot. You've got to change. The market's going to change. You can't play the same game. 
because the rules change. So you need to change. So there's nothing wrong with changing. The problem is that you need to eventually be successful with one of these changes, or you're going to have to basically sell the house. So they pivoted uh, from a, a financial advice firm, from, as, as they said, democratizing access to sophisticated financial advice to a bank. You know, in, in, uh, in 2019, uh, Andy was at the Invest conference and, and gave us a bunch of quotes. Now they had their pitch of self-driving money, that they're now a bank, they've got checking accounts, direct deposits, and that they, they've got algorithms that can help investors and, and, and their clients pay their bills more efficiently, move their money around more efficiently, put into a high yield savings account. All sounds good, interesting stuff. You know, we're always open for innovative ideas, see if it'll work. But the disparaging remarks that Andy made about banks, just, you know, it's got to come back to, to haunt him. Some of the things he said, and I tweeted about from the Invest Conference in 2019, uh, banking is one of two industries with negative net promoter scores. Cable companies are the other. Uh, banks run their businesses for their shareholders, not their customers. This is what holds them back. Then he said there's 50 million customers of retail banks that will eventually leave for a better solution over the next decade. I think he got that number from uh, 30% of the 180 million people with bank accounts never go to a branch. And those are the ones that he's going to target to uh, go to his new bank, which uh, clearly didn't happen, but it's possible. Uh, so they uh, then they made another pivot even more recently with the success of Robinhood that they start to offer uh, crypto trading and more self-directed options for clients, you know, uh, giving the clients more, more options and more, more functionality. So, uh, you know, again, lots of different options, lots of different things they were trying to do to, to make this successful. And they just could not get enough growth, could not bring in enough revenue to keep people happy and, and raise the valuation at all. You know, and one of the reasons why was uh, that they were pivoting so fast was that their growth was really slowing. It wasn't flatlining. They, they grew from back in 2019 when Andy was at the conference, they had 20 billion in AUM. And when they just sold, they had 28 billion, 27, 28. So what is that? It's like 30% growth over two years. Sounds good. But if you look at the RIA market, it's it's lagging. The, R, the average RIA grew their assets by 22%, I believe, over the past two years. So Wealthfront was, was really lagging the market in many ways, not just revenue, but in, in AUM. So they needed to sell. They, they, these different pivots weren't working. They weren't bringing enough new clients. Uh, so speaking of pivots, there was a, uh, Andy Ratcliffe was on a podcast in May 2020 called The Lend Academy with Peter Renton, where he they asked them about their pivots. And he said, well, I wouldn't call it a pivot, which was the banking pivot. Um, and he described, he said, I would describe Wealthfront as a next generation banking service, which is interesting. It's just, you know, you're really looking for, you're kind of grasping at straws here to try to find something that's going to attract people to your company. All right. So we, we did, we talked about the price a bit. Uh, we talked about that. Um, then we talked about that. Uh, I'll sit and mention this. So one of the things that we think uh, with Wealthfront, and I, the reason I compare them to RIAs is they're really just an online RIA for much of their business, uh, business life before they became a bank. And if you look at the RIA market uh, with 28 billion, it doesn't even put them in the top 10. Now it's good, they're like 11 or 12, so it's not bad, but they're not even the biggest RIA. Uh, so they've really got a long way to go to, to be successful, which is another reason why they had to sell. So why would UBS even buy Wealthfront? 
Well, uh, you look at some of the press reports and some of the things that have been leaking out, they've been trying for years to offer digital device solutions. They la UBS launched something called Smart Wealth in the UK in 2016, but shut it down and sold it to SigFig. Um, that deal probably helped them learn more about SigFig and which they eventually took an equity stake in later that year, and then agreed to use their software to open up a US robo-advisor. And then, um, so that they, that, that was their, their platform for, uh, for that. So you know, they were using SigFig for, for that platform. And uh, that's been going well for a while, but clearly not quite as well as they thought, or else why buy Wealthfront? If, you're, if your SigFig relationship is doing well, there's no reason to look at Wealthfront, uh, unless you're gonna merge them together, which really makes no sense. Uh, UBS called their US uh, digital advice program Advice Advantage. I was just searching for that name desperately. The, um, so they, they, bought, they, they invested in SigFig, launched their robo-advisor, and recently in their October earnings release, uh, UBS said it wanted to provide a seamless digital experience with remote human advice. So some sort of hybrid platform. And that was from uh, Scott Smith, an analyst at Boston-based Cerulli Associates. Now, one thing I, I was reading that was interesting um, that kind of leads me to think about this whole problem with Wealthfront and, and why they had to sell was from uh, a newsletter called FinTech Takes by Alex Johnson. You can look him up on Twitter, AlexH underscore Johnson or fintechtakes.com. And his newsletter this week was talking about FinTechs and the distribution versus manufacturing uh, dilemma. Uh, building a successful FinTech company or any company really, comes down to manufacturing and distribution. Can you build a compelling product that people want? And can you find, uh, can you distribute that product reliably and efficiently, Alex writes? So it's manufacturing and distribution. They're the two challenges that every founder wrestles with. And the question that's interesting is which challenge do you start with? So Andy Ratcliffe and Wealthfront started with manufacturing. They built everything from scratch. They built their tech platform. They built their, their company, raised, and then raised VC money to try to buy distribution, drive distribution of their product. Uh, and it was moderately, moderately successful. But once you, the market reaches maturity, the key to winning isn't in the manufacturing or the building of the product. It's in the distribution, uh, the distribution, and that's in many different industries, and certainly in wealth management. Being bigger gives you so many advantages. You need to hit certain plateaus, uh, or to keep up with your competitors who can deliver cheaper, faster, or better. So, Wealthfront was really besieged on all sides by competitors, whether it's Vanguard's and Schwab's launching their own robos and sucking up assets, or these self-directed firms. Like, like Robin Hood and M1 Finance offering new stuff. Um, I mean, there's an, an, even a company that just announced uh, the other day uh, called Compound. Um, came out of stealth mode with $37 million in funding, uh, VC funding. They mix human advice with a technology approach. Uh, the next generation of wealth is holding a different suite of assets, one that traditional wealth management is often struggling to support. That's compound. You can check them out. So there's always new ones coming out that are attracting their core, uh, their core client base of the 25 to 54 year old millennials under 40. And, and it was just became too much at some point and that they need distribution. And where can they get distribution? A wirehouse. And UBS has got tens of thousands of clients tens of thousands, uh, uh, you know, 10 to 15,000 advisors. They've got the distribution, they've got product. They can make this work. 
if anyone can make it work. So that's really where they they came to with a mature company, and you know they'll be morphed into something, uh, either some form, and that's really where they had to go in order to take this to the next level and do the right thing both for their employees and their customers, which is what Andy Ratcliffe did. Now, question we um, we were talking about. Uh, oh, I talked about the the pricing a bit. Okay, so that's done. Then um, six lingering questions following UBS's blockbuster purchase of Wealthfront. This is an article from uh, my good friend, Ryan Neal at financialplanning.com. Great article, uh, really interesting stuff here. I'm just gonna read a couple out and talk about some of his questions, which I thought was a really way, good way to um, position uh, this news. So what will happen to UBS's current robo-advisor program powered by SIGFIG, which we just talked about, uh, the advice advantage? So there's two questions, what should happen and what is likely to happen? So if they ask me, you want to shut down the SIGFIG program. There's no reason to have two uh, robo-advisor programs, two digital advice programs. Even if you do one hybrid and one not, you don't want to keep them. You want them on separate tech platforms. It makes no sense. So either you shut down Wealthfront and roll the assets over to SIGFIG or vice versa. Um, although I would suspect, knowing what I know a little about SIGFIG, that maybe they would do the opposite and shut SIGFIG down and, and, uh, and uh, roll it over to Wealthfront. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no insider information. However, what I find is um, it's often political that politics over, usually trumps uh, common sense or what's best for the company in the long run because people don't want to shut down their babies. So if a, if a, the CEO or, or, the, or different heads of the company uh, leaders have brought in a particular technology and then they buy something else, usually they're going to defend what they bought or what they built and the, other, the, and the newcomer gets, gets hammered. But in this case, uh, the former CEO, Sergio uh, Imadi, is gone, but replaced by Ralph Hammers. And uh, Rich Steinmeier, who was head of wealth the Wealth Advice Center, is now uh, divisional president at LPL. So both those leaders ha have moved on. So there's really no one standing in the way of shutting down the SIGFIG program and rolling that over into Wealthfront, which is what I would recommend, again, not knowing any, any more details about what's going on at the company. Uh, did UBS buy Wealthfront for the technology, the user base, or a combination of both? So uh, Michael Keatsis, I believe online, posted some of his back of the napkin uh, calculations that based on a 25 basis points fee on 28 billion, Wealthfront's got about 70 million in revenue, which is UBS, means they're paying 21 times revenue for the FinTech. So, you know, what, do you, what does that tell you? Uh, which is why that what they're buying. It doesn't really tell you much about what they're buying because of, you know, you really, it's hard to evaluate you know, the tech. The tech could be great and, they, and they don't have a lot of revenue or the tech could be crap and they've got a lot of revenue. So um, I think it might be some combination because again, UBS is a huge company. They don't need 28 billion in, in, in assets. That doesn't do anything for them. You know, they, they pick that up you know, on a regular basis. Um, you know, uh, they, they, what's the joke that they, they find that in their couch cushions, $28 billion. So they're not, they're not going to pay that for that. They, I would imagine it's a combination of the people, uh, the, the core technology team that they're getting en masse and the technology that they believe they can use for their new uh, advice advantage or their new hybrid um, uh, technology uh, program or some form of other uh, programs that they believe they can sell. You know, they've got their wealth advice center. They've got their workplace wealth solutions. So there's lots of other things that they can sell this into. Uh, there's lots of other other tools and lots of other options 
that UBS can use the Wealthfront tech for. So that's where I see them hopefully doing that uh, rather than uh, you know throwing it away. They should be leveraging that into these other programs, which I think could be relatively lucrative for them. Talk about one of our sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. The Invest in Others Foundation is a charitable foundation that helps charities which are supported by financial advisors. So if you know a financial advisor that supports a charity, either in the US or abroad, you can submit his or her name to the Invest in Others Foundation to one of their programs, and they can be awarded uh, money for their charity. The Invest in Others Foundation is running one of their programs right now called Grants for Good. The application deadline is next week, January 24th. So please submit your financial advisor, as you know, for this grant. I think they're awarding up to $100,000 in grants to a number of charities. So any person who works in the financial services ecosystem is eligible to apply on behalf of a nonprofit. Uh, applications must be uh, active, currently volunteering with the nonprofit, and you just fill out the form online and you get a chance to uh, get some money for these nonprofits. I've been uh, honored to be a judge in some of these uh, programs, and it's really tough. We have to look at 10 uh, different charities and decide, and, and their advisors who help them, and decide which ones to get the money. It's really hard. So the more money that you donate to invest in others, the more of these grants we can give. It makes it easier for us to pick because we'll have more money to, to spread around. So please go to the Invest in Others Foundation, investinothers.org on the web. You can learn more about them. Thanks. And now we come to the question that I think will decide whether this um, acquisition will succeed or fail. It is how will Wealthfront's Silicon Valley culture fit in with a Swiss multinational bank? Wealthfront has long maintained a confrontational relationship with the traditional wealth management industry. And that is the understatement of the year. Uh, between uh, previous CEO Adam Nash and Andy Ratcliffe and the current CEO, um, well, not the current CEO, David Fortunato, but um, Ratcliffe and, and Nash, they've certainly been antagonistic to traditional wealth management, seeing themselves as the disruptors, um, not only antagonistic to wealth management, but antagonistic to banks uh, as well. So definitely uh, going to be an issue. And, and this is really where things will hinge. And in my opinion, uh, it's going to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back because you know I've had a lot of people on this podcast, spoken to a lot of very successful people, people who've made really big deals. And one of the most important things in any merger or acquisition is culture. No matter how good the technology is or how many assets you're acquiring, if the culture of the teams don't mesh, if the culture of the businesses don't mesh, you're really gonna have serious problems and you, you have a high probability of failure because that's really how things work. You, you, you just don't bring a Silicon Valley culture into a Swiss bank and say, okay, make it, figure it out. You know, just uh, everybody compromise and, and make this product work. You know, when you hear things, you know, like you hear things from uh, the CEO, the current CEO, David Fortunato, when he says these crazy statements, it was clear from the start that we shared the same values and culture. What are you talking about? Nobody believes that. I mean, he, he, at least tell the truth, at least say, hey, this is gonna be a problem. We are coming from one area, they're somewhere, they're somewhere else, we're the Hatfields, they're the McCoys, but we're gonna make it work. 
but saying something like that doesn't help, in my opinion. You know, UBS is a hugely profitable company, very good at what they do. Um, and, you know, they're, they're acquiring this firm. Uh, you know, the odds that, you know, they do everything they can to make this work, but don't try to, you know, uh, sugarcoat it or gaslight people to say, we have the same values and culture. You certainly do not. Uh, it's, nothing, it's nothing like this at all. So, you know, clearly everyone wants to make it work. Everyone wants this to, 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 uh, to go well. And it's gonna seem pretty smooth at first. They're gonna keep things independent. But at some point, whether it's a year or two years down the road, when the assets aren't growing quick enough or uh, there's too many departures of, of key people and the new people who are taking over don't have the same um, knowledge, the same zeal, the same ideas, or the same leeway that Wealthfront had to pivot and change and, and increasingly uh, change direction to uh, eke every possible uh, bit of assets out of, of, uh, of their clients that then things are gonna start you know, getting a little messy. And you might see UBS doing what Vanguard and, uh, did when they launched their, um, their uh, robo, which is just shift money over from one pocket to another to make it look like they're doing something. So they'll, they'll do that. They may turn this into some sort of Merrill Edge uh, clone where they can ship, they can incentivize their advisors to ship small accounts over to the Wealthfront business, uh, which will goose the assets and make that look good. Uh, begin a marketing campaign for the existing client base, maybe even lower the price. I mean, 75 business points is, is pretty high for what they're offering. Uh, they can start pushing their own products into the mix, which will also goose uh, profits, profitability quite a bit. Um, so you know, all these solutions will eventually happen, in my opinion. Uh, and eventually they'll retire the Wellfirm brand and it'll become just another wirehouse product. Unfortunately, that's just the way things go. Um, and we'll see how it goes. It's, um, it's, we, have, we always have high hopes for these, these mergers and, and, and this new stuff. Um, but in the end, it, come, it boils down to dollars and cents and someone's gonna have to make a business decision uh, as to what. And that's the, the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Glad you made it all the way through to the end. Hope you enjoyed what I had to say. Uh, please go to our website, ezragroupllc.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our newsletter. Every month, you will get an email chock full of wealth management, wealth tech goodness, news, analysis, updates, links, all kinds of interesting stuff for you to share and learn from. Oh, so thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to everyone again next time.